It's weird to see you without like a hat on. <laughs> All the girls always say that. They're like, "Oh, you actually do have hair." You have nice hair. I I do have nice hair, but I have to I have to always have nice hair for work. So when I'm at the gym, I'm like, I'm gonna wear a hat. That's fair. Yeah, I didn't I didn't realize you were also a massage therapist. Yeah, I've uh, well, I've been practicing officially for uh, almost two years now, but I was uh, practicing unofficially for maybe a few years longer than that for no money. Gotcha. And you were working. You're working out of CrossFit most right now. Uh, no, I work directly out of my apartment here. Nice. So, yeah, they. Uh, I did all my practicum there, and I've known the folks over there at most for years and years. Dave was my therapist when I uh, when I dislocated my shoulder when I was like 18 years old, and he's mm -hmm. been kind of rehabbing me through the shoulder for. Oh, probably 10 years, 15 years now. So that's where I did all my sort of my my sort of education as I was going through school. How old are you now? I'm 32 now. 32, yeah. Not not quite a baby anymore, but we're the same age. Oh. <laughs> yeah, See? I feel the same I feel the same way, but Yeah, it's uh some days I feel like I'm 18, and then I go and start to start to do uh, Santa clean and jerk again. And I remember I'm not 25. <laughs> so I don't. I try to find a little bit more information about you in terms of your Olympic lifting background, but fine with the Olympic lifting associations. They don't post things like it's not like there's an open powerlifting website for <laughs> Olympic lifting. So do you want to kind of go and just tell us a little bit about? your background in Olympic lifting as an athlete first? Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll, I'll rewind it back a little bit and digress, but uh, originally I was a competitive snowboarder and I was a competitive snowboard coach and I ran a club. Um, and from the nature of that sport, I ended up having a handful of shoulder surgeries and blowing out my knee. Um, and as part of that process, I kind of found strength and conditioning as part of my rehab process. Mm -hmm. So I started with CrossFit and I was like, uh, I don't really like breathing that hard. So snatch and clean and jerk interest me a lot more. Or Olympic lifting interest me a lot more because it was a lot more technical. Um, and there was a lot more requirement around understanding that technical skill. And that related a lot more to my snowboarding. Um, and so at that point I was too messed up. My shoulder was all pulled apart. Um, I couldn't do snatch or clean and jerk, so I just was coaching and learning on my own and, and teaching the team as best I could. Um, and then that was probably like 2014, 2015, um, at which point I went and got my coaching certification and I started just, I had a, another shoulder surgery and had it fixed and I could actually start doing snatch and putting stuff over my head. Um, so at that point, I trained and competed a few times. I mean, nothing to anything uh, impressive. I got up to about a 95 kilo snatch and 120 kilo clean and jerk uh, at 81. 
So I wasn't setting any records. I wasn't going to nationals or anything like that. Um, but at that point, I had really just begun focused on um, coaching, and I was getting a lot more um, satisfaction out of coaching athletes than I was out of competing. And even as recently as this year, back in February, I competed. Um, and I just found that my time as an athlete is, uh, is up. I mean, I'm still sort of exercising and training and doing that sort of stuff, but my time being selfish to an extent like that is, is kind of come and gone. Um, just because I don't want to sacrifice my energy that I can be giving to my athletes for, for that pursuit right now. Mm -hmm. No, that makes, that makes great sense. Um, I was going to ask you then, in terms of, I guess, when's the peak for an Olympic lifter in terms of their performance? Is it kind of mid-20s or is it sometimes early 30s or just kind of vary mm. from, from athlete to athlete? I, I think, obviously, it depends on athlete to athlete. I think the other variation around that differs on female versus male um, and then also their weight class. But typically what I would say is, if we're looking at long-term athlete development, um, really we should be starting these athletes when they're like 10 or 12. That's why you look at China, you look at Russia, they have such deep sports programs with Olympic weightlifting is they're getting these kids really young. Um, at which point you're typically seeing like mid twenties, late twenties, I would say is probably the peak. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, there are outliers that compete well into their 30s, but I would say, like, that mid to late 20s, A, you've developed enough strength. In a lot of these other countries, you've been on performance-enhancing drugs long enough, um, and you've also gotten to a point where you've developed your skill set to a point where you've sort of, like, chunked that information enough that your technique is more or less perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, you're not going to make a lot of technique improvements at that point in time. You're just going to get stronger mm -hmm. and you start to run through the wear and tear. So long story short, I would say probably like late twenties at most early thirties, that's kind of your window for your best opportunities. Mm -hmm. Um, if you can stay healthy, if you're a larger man, that's likely going to be earlier. Yep. If you're a smaller woman, that's likely going to be later. Is that just mostly because heavier people are lifting heavier weights and then vice versa with the smaller women? Or is there something else to that, in your opinion? I think that's probably, I mean, 90% of it. But you look at somebody like Lasha, who's currently the best, um, the best super heavyweight lifter. And I mean, he's lifting the heaviest weights that have ever been lifted at this point in time. Mm -hmm. Lasha looks like he's older than you and I, Matt. And he's like 27. Like, <laughs> there's only so long that you can be 400 pounds and mm -hmm. snatch 500 pounds and clean and jerk nearly 600 pounds before your body's like, no, like, we're over it. We're not going to do this anymore. Yeah. Um, and I do think there comes into being a factor of like being that big, you start to run into problems with like blood pressure in your heart. And then on top of it, I mean, 
separating North American lifters from the world stage. The amount of PEDs these guys are doing, it like it's not it's not a longevity factor. We're not trying to make these guys train and compete as long as possible. Yeah, you're not you're not trying to live until you're 120. No. <laughs> no. I was do you, that's the thing. Like I, 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 you brought it. I know that like that they're using performance enhancing drugs, but do you think it's as much as as like like how much do you think they're actually taking? Because obviously there's there's some level of drug testing mm-hmm. at these at the like Olympic level, anyways. Yeah. So this is a sticky topic. We're gonna get into it so early. Hey, all right. May as um, well. So it's well known. I mean, from a general public perspective, I'd say that it's being used a lot more than people would like to say it is. Those of us that are in Olympic weightlifting can pretty comfortably say that it's being used a lot. And the reason for that is when we look at North American weightlifting, or even like the Commonwealth countries, like the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, um, and then you can say like the USA, and then you can also sort of extrapolate that out to some places like Germany. Um, they're the only countries that are trying to catch their athletes doing drugs. Mm-hmm. When you look at Russia, I don't know if you, have you seen the documentary Icarus? A couple times, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, so like. In Russia or China or Kazakhstan or whatever, any any country you go look at that's currently winning world championships or, or world records, those countries are not trying to catch their athletes cheating. Mm-hmm. They're not trying to catch their athletes doing drugs. In fact, they're trying to ensure that their athletes don't get caught and that they can do drugs and not get caught. So mm-hmm. when we talk about Olympic weightlifting, I mean, you had Josh on the podcast. Ask Josh. He's been tested. He's been he's been tested at local meets. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody's testing national weightlifters in Russia at a local meet. Mm-hmm. Like whether they say they are or not, maybe they're testing them and saying, "Oh yeah, like." You tested positive. <laughs> Congratulations. And then they yeah, just, yeah. they do nothing with it. Yeah. That's, that was kind of like the message on Icarus is like, they, they do, they do the testing, but in many cases, they just kind of just sweep it under, under the rug or they'll have like scapegoat athletes where they just like purposely make them test positive. So like it doesn't look hundred percent fishy. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's definitely an interesting topic. It just, it's obviously you want a, an even, pl- uh, playing field and obviously that the, the countries that are able to they have the support from their their country um, it's much it's very difficult to compete against those people well and i think it's, it's a valid point but we also need to there's a cultural problem with doping and weightlifting is mm-hmm. that when we look at the, like the culture of drugs and weightlifting runs so deep and so profound that it's not it it takes a real cultural shift and change in the mindset of the sport to get away from that 
Like we can sit here and, and sit on our high soapbox and go, oh, like everybody should be fair and yada yada this and yada yada that. But this the use of performance enhancing drugs is so entrenched in the culture throughout the world that to change that there needs to be really dire consequences to stop people from using drugs. Like we brought up Lasha. Lasha got popped when he was 18, like mm -hmm. a junior. And he's lifting a hundred kilos more in the total now than he was then. So we're going to sit there and say, Oh, like he got so much better because he fucking drank the right amount of water and he's eating protein. Like, are you, mm -hmm. is, are you kidding me? No. And the only way that we can really make the shift on a large scale is when people get popped, they get banned. Like not mm -hmm. two years, a trancation, um, they're gone. Like you're not allowed to compete anymore. Mm -hmm. If you get two team in a year, like you ban the team. Like yeah. North Korea came back this year and North Korea hasn't competed. I want to say like the last time North Korea was like on the world stage was Anaheim world championships, which would have been like, I don't know, 2018, 2017. And they came back and they're a, they look like mutants. You're like, perfect. Like that's where all the food is going in North Korea is to these guys. But who's testing North Koreans? Well, it's impossible to get the testing there, right? Exactly. And, like, you think North Korea is testing their athletes? <laughs> like, they're like, uh, we're good. Hard pass. They're, Thank you, they're, though. They're testing their athletes just to make sure that their, their androgen levels are high enough. Yeah. They're like, how can we ensure <laughs> that they're jacked up mutants? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's fundamentally part of it. They've cleaned a lot of house in the IWF. Like there was a big scandal last year, a couple of years ago, where it came out that the president of IWF was taking bribes to pass people. Mm -hmm. So they pop people at world championships or whatever, and then they'd go, okay, you pay us $45,000, like negative test. Mm -hmm. And this was found so, out. So corrupt. Oh, so corrupt. And I think we're starting to see some of the changes occur. But I think it's going to be a little while yet till we actually get something tangible that makes a difference. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side of things, where we're seeing this not have as big an effect is on female weightlifting. It is like in men, I mean, there's, there's a guy right now, Carlos Nassar, who's from Bulgaria. He's like 22 years old. He looks like he's 37. Clean and jerks like 230-something. But in the female side, we're seeing like Olivia Reeves from the U.S. meddling, Kate Nye from the U.S. meddling, Maddie Rogers meddling, um, Jordan Delacruz and Haley Reichardt. Like there's five, six, seven women, Maude from Canada, mm -hmm. um, who are all doing amazing things. And we know that they're being tested. Mm -hmm. And like we had a discussion, our team had a discussion about this last night is why is that? And it fundamentally comes down to the fact that female weightlifting is new. It's, it's only been kicking around for maybe 20 years mm -hmm. where men's weightlifting has been around since the fifties. Yeah. 
you would just you would think though like the females are being coached by these coaches that have been coaching males for longer periods of time that they would kind of adopt a similar system in terms of drug use training those sorts of things yeah i i agree with that and you know what there's still a lot of stuff that slips through the 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 cracks there's a handful of european female weightlifters that were popped when they were juniors and they're setting world records now but mm-hmm. it's a lot fewer and farther between than it is for men like there's a there's a rule of thumb i don't know do you know who zach Tounder is no so he's a he's a fitness influencer i know he probably wouldn't like to hear that but he's he's a weightlifter down in the u.s Mm-hmm. And he talks about a factor that you can look at that you can say if the weights lifted are comparable to world records within 10% and those world records were set by people knowingly on drugs. Like if we go look at drug tests from the 2012 Olympics, you can see that like the top five athletes in every men's category were basically popped or have been popped. Mm-hmm. And if you're within 10% of those, it's a fairly safe assumption to assume they're probably on drugs, but these, because of the new sort of weight classes with women, it being a newer sport, there hasn't been a lot of that pre-established structure, that infrastructure yet that they have for the men. So I think that's part of it, but also the, the men or the coaches in the U S are starting on a even playing field. You look at guys like Greg Everett from Catalyst Athletics. You look at um, uh, the guy from uh, Garage Strength. A lot of these guys sort of started coaching female weightlifters in the mid to mid to late 2000s. Mm-hmm. So they've got as much of a leg up as any of these European countries. But they're getting gotcha. more longevity out of them. Gotcha. Would you say that in the female categories, there's a, a greater or I guess a lesser reliance on strength as a component to be successful in Olympic lifting and more of a kind mm-hmm. of a more of a technique technique uh, bias. It's hard to say. I mean, mm-hmm. I think when we sort of start having a discussion around strength versus skill, um, skill comes first when it comes to weightlifting. Fundamentally, I mean, if I can get an athlete who's weak, but has good mobility and has some of just like the mental requirements to to sort of grind through and understand the requirements, that's going to be a lot more beneficial to me as a coach to develop that athlete than it would be if they came in really strong. But it's hard to say over the course of the long term because there there comes a point of that scale slides the other way. But in weightlifting, there's always a point of you can be strong enough. Where powerlifting, is there ever a point where you're strong enough? You can always be stronger. Mm-hmm. Where And I mean, I ran into this personally on my own was I got myself up to a 400 pound back squat and a 120 kilo clean and jerk. The effort required to get my squat numbers to increase 
to correlate to increases in my clean and jerk was fundamentally something I didn't have the time or recovery capability to do personally. Mm -hmm. Right. I had other priorities, whatever they are. So there comes a point of diminishing returns where is the juice worth the squeeze is, is adding two more training sessions in a week going to break you or is it going to like, do you have all your other ducks in a row to recover from that? Mm-hmm. So I think obviously skill comes first, strength comes second, but then you have to weigh the benefits of, do you have a strength deficit or a skill deficit? And I think you're always in a better position to have a strength deficit first because mm-hmm. it's, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, in my opinion, it's a lot easier to get stronger than it is to develop a skill. Yeah. And usually athletes who have like a fairly kind of intermediate to advanced strength level, they're kind of really, they've already developed patterns that are a lot more difficult to change. But if you're weaker, I find it's a lot easier to kind of manipulate someone's technique. Yeah. And, and if you can kind of keep those two things even ish, it's a lot easier to sort of manage those problems. Um, Mm Like I've run into it personally where I've just made athletes too strong. Boo-hoo. But it had, I, I just pushed the squat numbers and I pushed their pull numbers and their push numbers too heavy too quickly. They got really strong and it had a negative effect on their their skill. It had a detriment to their ability to apply their skill because they could sort of, there's, Almost like when you're weaker, you can feel the movement better. That there's sort of the input from the weight and the movement is almost like a lower threshold, I guess you could say. So you can feel and apply technique changes easier. But if you're so much stronger, it becomes really difficult to feel basically like there's not enough input. So you have mm-hmm. to somehow add weight, but maintain technique, but the technique isn't there. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like, like just relating to like bodybuilding. It's like the difference between a mind muscle connection and like just a good old fashioned power lift, just yeah. trying to move them as most, the most amount of weight as possible in just the easiest way possible. Well, and it, you and I had, like we had this discussion at the gym when you were and I, you and I were kind of chatting that one day is reps in reserve and training to failure um, is for somebody to understand how to use reps in reserve for hypertrophy training. You have to have, you have to train to failure. Yeah. Like to know what one or two reps in reserve is, you better sure as shit know what zero reps in reserve is. But that becomes really difficult for a lot of people. And to that, to that same point is when you're quite strong, when you have a strength surplus, you don't have enough. You sort of haven't developed the mind muscle connection to use, use your, your statement there is mm-hmm. you haven't sort of developed the motor neurons yet to pattern that movement really, really well. Gotcha. So when you're working with your athletes, then it's just 
obviously there's not like a formula like you need to keep strength levels within a certain percentage of the actual olympic lifts but it's a matter a matter of just looking at that athlete and just determining whether or not they need more strength or more technique and vice well and this is this is the nerd in me is there is there is a lot of pre-established percentages or percentage ranges that you can say like your back squat if it's within these numbers you should be able to snatch this Mm -hmm. um how much emphasis you put on that is an argument amongst every coach that's ever existed. Um, (laughs) Some people like it, other people don't, but I think at the end of the day, it comes down to being a tool for you to decide and make decisions on is if you're a bit at a loss, right? If you, you're like, well, shit, I don't know what I should do here. It's just data to make a decision on. So, I mean, I have a handful of spreadsheets that I'll use that I put snatch, clean and jerk, power clean, power snatch, front squat, back squat, all sorts of other stuff into. And it develops a, a basically a ratio to say, this is where your snatch is. This is where it should be based on your clean and jerk. You have a technical surplus or mm-hmm. vice versa. And that can just be really helpful from a communication standpoint to communicate with an athlete and explain this is why we're doing what we're doing. But on the other side, it can help you make decisions and evaluate somebody's progress. Um, A good example of that is, is one of my athletes. They have great snatch they snatch in the sort of mid 70s at a 64 kilo female and but based on their front and back squat numbers they should be clean and jerking like in the deep 90s maybe even like 100 kilos Mm -hmm. and they clean and jerk in the mid 80s so when we look at that we know that they're more than strong enough to stand up those lifts but their technique isn't at a point where they can fundamentally do that And so we're not going to spend a ton of time and effort with that athlete to move their needle on our front squat. Like I'm not going to take their front squat from 106 to 110. That's not going to make them clean and jerk 90. Them learning, them doing more clean and jerk and developing the skill around clean and jerk is going to let them clean and jerk 90. Mm -hmm. Let's go into a little bit more specifics around kind of programming for improving technique because i'm like to be honest i don't know a ton around olympic lifting programs so just make sure you um when you're when you're speaking just know that i don't know the the different terms but um i would say that someone wants to kind of work on their their clean and clean and jerk technique like what are some of the things that you're looking at to kind of get that uh, athlete to improve their technique so there's um Kind of the framework I work inside of is one that was developed by Max Ada. I don't know if you're familiar with who he is. Um, I've, I've seen him on uh, Mark Bell's podcast a couple of times. Yes. Yeah, so Max is a sweet guy. Little little pinch of the autism. Super cool. Is in love with weightlifting. But yeah. he developed a framework called the Technique Triad, which is it's part of the framework and the process I use to develop and look at technique and evaluate people's technique. And 
what that comes down to is the three portions of it are time to fixation, relative height of the barbell, and trajectory. And those are kind of the three portions. And mm-hmm. so trajectory is how close the barbell stays to the center of mass throughout the movement. And a real easy way to evaluate if somebody's got good trajectory is do they step forward or do they step back? Or do they move from the point where their feet start? Mm -hmm. Draw a line on the ground, put a piece of tape on the ground. If they jump forward, their trajectory is forward. If they jump backwards, their their trajectory is backwards. Mm -hmm. Those things are going to tell you what sort of special exercises you're going to make decisions to do to reduce their ability to affect that trajectory. Does that make sense? Yep, for sure. Um, and I'm assuming so, the, is the center mass the barbell or is it midfoot on the athlete? Six of one and a half does the other. So when we're starting to kind of have that conversation, the barbell will move backwards of the center of mass off the floor. Mm-hmm. So it'll start over the midfoot, just in front mm-hmm. of the ankle bone. That's where yeah. the barbell will start. Yeah. As you move past the knees, the bar is going to move backwards behind that center of mass. And mm-hmm. then when the, when the athlete extends or moves through the power position, the bar is going to move forward of that center of mass. So if we draw a straight line up, from that, that where we talked about just in front of the ankle bone, it's going to move backwards and then it's going to move forwards and then it's going to recenter itself right over top of that center of gravity. Now, what we don't want to see is that it moves backwards and stays backwards, then it's a backwards movement, mm-hmm. right? So that sort of transition, that S curve moved back and stayed back. Mm-hmm. And or we don't want to see that it didn't move back enough and then extension move the barbell in front. So those are misses in front or misses behind. Gotcha. Um, now, that gets pretty nuanced because you can go look at a hundred different athletes pull curve. It's you can go Google like um, Olympic weightlifting S curve or Olympic weightlifting curve. And it'll show the bar path as it moves from the floor. And that bar path differs quite drastically depending on somebody's technique. And it depends on the athlete and the coach and their sort of framework around technique Mm -hmm. to decide what is correct. Because there's some athletes from back in the 80s that have a very exaggerated S-curve and moves quite a bit far back behind the center of mass and it moves quite a bit forward in front of the center of mass. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Maybe. Homeboy snatched 100 and kilo, 180 kilos at 75. Like, There's not much that I can sit there and say that there's anything wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to teach that. It's just not, it doesn't have a scalable effect where if I don't have a Bulgarian that's on a grandma test a week and they're highly motivated and um, they're happy to train 14 days a week and they have 
people looking after them and massaging them. We need to manage better technique because better, more accurate technique is better scalable to athletes who may not have the recovery capability around that, mm-hmm. but then they may not have the fundamental athletic skill around it. I mean, not all of my athletes are ex-gymnasts. A lot of them are older or maybe haven't competed before or haven't been athletes in a past life. If I have better technique long-term and I teach them better technique, I have a lower chance of having injuries. I have longer term that they can continue to train. And if they can train longer, they can develop their technique better and therefore get better. Yeah. And I, I believe I saw one of your Instagram posts where you're talking about, we can't look at the top levels, top lifters levels in terms of their technique, because that, that might not be how they're always performing it. It's just on the max efforts where we have those larger swings in the S, the S trajectory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, when, when we look at these guys, a, a good example is like Carlos Nassar, the guy I brought up earlier from Bulgaria. Mm-hmm. If you look at the way that he lifts, he has bad technique. Like by no stretch of the imagination, anybody who's a good weightlifter would look at that and be like, uh, I don't know if that's the most efficient way to do that. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to try and mimic that. So I think that's where it's really valuable. When you go look at training hall footage, go look at how athletes move the barbell, like no weight on the barbell. Mm-hmm. It looks perfect and it's crisp every time. And you'll see that when you watch these guys that are really, really skilled, China in particular, they have beautiful technique is the bar up to 85 or 90% looks identical. And even when they start getting past 90%, it looks identical. Mm -hmm. Every lift should look the same. Every lift in every set should look the same. That's what we're striving towards. We're not always perfect, but if we can develop that, then when the day comes, because when we're doing those those practice lifts up to 85% in training, we're trying to lay a, a foundation. We're trying to myelinate the motor units so that they can fire more efficiently. If every lift is a little bit different, we're not getting that motor pattern recognition. We're not developing a consistent motor pattern. And so if we can make, there's a, a quote from Kelly Sturette that he says, practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent. Perfect practice makes perfect. So mm-hmm. if we can be really, really skilled and thoughtful about our technique, when we're working at that 85%, we can develop a bit of a feel. Um, mm-hmm. Less thinking, more doing. So that when we get to those heavier lifts, we can allow those technique flaws to occur. And we're not Mm going to be that concerned about it. Like, that's what we would expect. But we'll let those technique flaws occur at 90%. And then they can feel the lift. They can be committed to the lift. They're not thinking their way through the lift. It's like, I don't know, have you ever played golf? Are you a golf guy? I've played golf before. I'm, I'm horrible, but yeah. Go ahead. So if you try and think your way through a golf swing, how well does it go? Not great. Goes into the water. Yeah. You have to feel it. It's a, it's, and that's a bit of 
what I'm wrestling with right now as a coach is how do we move from a gradation from feeling or thinking to feeling? Um, and it's a bit of this process development of like, you move from unconscious incompetence. You don't know you suck, but you mm -hmm. suck to conscious incompetence. You suck. And I know I suck. Like I can feel where I suck mm -hmm. to conscious competence. Mm -hmm. I know I'm getting better and I can apply it to unconscious competence, which is, I know I know how to do this and I can just let my body do what it's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And so it's moving people kind of through that pyramid that takes time and takes a bit of a mind shift from where you start to where you finish. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like, like some of the, the best athletes are the ones that can kind of go through that spectrum the quickest? I think so. I think there's, are we talking about Olympic weightlifting athletes or athletes in general? We're, we'll talk specifically about Olympic lifting athletes, but I feel like at, like Olympic lifting athletes, a lot of them have more athletic -y backgrounds, like you said, gymnastics or other sports. I think your ability to move through that process quickly is predicated on how many skills you've already developed, right? If we mm -hmm. think of athletic skill as a pyramid, the bigger the base is, the taller the pyramid can be, or the triangle. And so when we talk about gymnasts, when we talk about people like um, Kate Nye or Maddie Rogers that came into the sport with a, a fairly wide base of skill sets for weightlifting, mm -hmm. they had already developed a bunch of skills to the point of unconscious competence. So their ability to brace, their ability to be overhead, their ability to generate force, all those things had already been developed. Mm -hmm. So the ability to apply it to weightlifting happened fairly quickly. Where if we're taking a power lifter, no offense against any power lifters, but that's all they've ever done. Mm -hmm. They've really never had their hands above their head very much. They haven't dealt with kind of that really upright torso position in the squat. It could take time for them to learn and develop and understand what that movement is supposed to feel like mm -hmm. because they haven't they haven't worked their way through that pyramid on a previous skill that can be then applied to this skill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, powerlifting is a lot different than Olympic lifting in terms of the movement variability and the in, in the movement capabilities. Obviously, there's some similarities, but a lot different than uh, comparing that to a gymnast or even like someone mm -hmm. like maybe an MMA athlete. Yeah. And I think that's, it's, that's part of it. Like that. Have you had a previous skill development there? Mm -hmm. But I think another big part that we don't discuss quite as much here is like genetics, geography and opportunity which is you may be genetically gifted to do whatever, sure. But geography and opportunity, do you have opportunities to be exposed to that sport? Mm -hmm. And are you in a place that gives you an opportunity to be exposed to that sport? And the motivation that comes with that is 
Like, people always talk about, well, if we could get all of our football players to go and do weightlifting, like, we'd be amazing on the on the world stage. Sure, but geography and opportunity are the two things that aren't showing up in that equation. Is they're being raised in the southern United States. They don't have opportunities or exposures to Olympic weightlifting outside of strength and conditioning. Right? Yeah. So... And then is there even an opportunity like Saquon Barkley or DK Metcalf or any of these guys in the NFL that are freaks, Marshawn Lynch, if they had had the opportunity to get really good at weightlifting, they're like, oh, you want to go live in poverty the rest of your life? Mm -hmm. Like, that's not going to motivate people where that's part of the issue in North America is a motivation problem that like, Fundamentally, if somebody wants to come train at Evolve, $75 a month or whatever it is, plus paying you or me to coach you, you have to have some sort of income and backup to be able to support you to do that. Where if you look at places like Russia or China, they're fundamentally taking kids from poverty and saying, you have an opportunity to be out of poverty and support your family. Mm -hmm. So that motivation factor changes your ability to apply and develop a skill. Right. hundred percent. It's like a, it's like a job for them, right? They, they have the potential they get earnings based on mm -hmm. how well they do. And it, it, a lot more conducive to producing a highly successful athlete. A hundred, a hundred percent. And mm -hmm. when the motivation factor is you go back to living in a gulag, like, this was the Bulgarians back in the 70s. They took people out of prison and taught them how to weightlift. And they're like, <laughs> if you're not successful, we'll send you back to prison. And that's, mm -hmm. that's not a joke. Mm -hmm. And the Bulgarian program was snatch to maximum, squat to maximum, clean and jerk to maximum, squat to maximum every single day. It was 14 mm -hmm. sessions a week. And if you take me, like, to, to our exact point earlier... I was not motivated to add more training to make the needle go forward. I was like, I got other stuff I need to do. I've got a job. I've got a fiance. I've got all this other stuff I need to do where over there. It's like, if I don't do this, like I'm going back to the gulag, I'll do it. <laughs> and, and I yeah. think that's an important factor is that we're not going to break people for the sake of, making Olympians here. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But I think at the end of the day, like we need to recognize the fact that we're working inside of sort of a different sphere for now. I think in 20 or 30 years, a lot of my athletes who are going to have kids and those kids are starting to weightlift. That's going to be a very different structure of motivation. Yeah. Especially too, like, I guess these sports are growing popularity because of social media. People mm -hmm. are getting more clout, more influence because of their big lifts, those sorts of things. Their physiques that are developed as a result. You know, there's always, there's a joke we always make is like worst way to, or the longest way to look like a bodybuilder is to do Olympic weightlifting. Like mm -hmm. it'll develop, it'll give you a sweet physique. Like you'll have mm -hmm. a big ass and big quads and a huge back, but it's going to take forever. Yeah, because you guys like, are training and the volumes are going to be a little bit different, right? Yeah, and it's just like over the course, the sport will develop your body, but you're just not 
like using weightlifting to develop hypertrophy is you're missing the whole point. <laughs> yeah. It happens if, by accident almost. If you if you layer on a gram of testosterone though. Probably great. You're like, probably gonna be alright. Yeah, you'll look sweet if you do that. Like you'll look like Klokov. <laughs> but I mean if you're not doing that, like it's gonna take a long time. I it's a joke that we always make is like I've been training for 10 plus years. And like, if you didn't know, you'd be like, that guy looks like he's been to the gym before. I would say he's not actively going, but he's <laughs> probably been to the gym. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, let's, let's talk about like a little bit more about um, hypertrophy. You and I kind of discussed a little bit about this um, a couple weekends ago. Where do you see more of hypertrophy training fitting into an Olympic lifters uh, kind of toolkit? So I think standard, standard Olympic weightlifting training, like kind of the fundamental way that a lot of us coaches were taught how to program for weightlifting leaves a lot of hypertrophy work to the wayside. And I think that's a bit of a miss. And the reason I think that's a miss is because fundamentally I don't think we need to be smashing too much volume of weightlifting at higher percentages to people because they're not skilled enough to manage that. That's we've talked about this mm -hmm. and it's not a good way to develop hypertrophy. And at the end of the day, weightlifting is the sport. It's not a good way to develop physiological adaptations. It's just not, that's not what it's there for. Mm -hmm. So I think what's important is that we spend the time doing our skill do your snatch, do your clean and jerk, do it with really good technique. And then doing hypertrophy at the end of your workout, but purposefully, like it's not a maybe. It's not like, oh, I'm, I guess I'll do it. Like I kind of want to just go home, so I'll skip it. Like that's something that we really hammer home or that I hammer home as a coach is like, this is not optional. This is 80, 90% of your volume in a given week is this work. Mm -hmm. and. From a hypertrophy standpoint, great. Like, we get some muscles. That looks sweet. More bigger cross-sectional muscle can generate more force. More force can be generated. You can lift heavier weight in theory. But I think the secondary portion is, like, weightlifting is so damaging to your connective tissue just from the impact, the ranges of motion. Is it dangerous? I'm not going to say – I'm not going to use that wording. But, like, it is – if you ask any weightlifter, you're like, hey, like, how do your knees feel? They're like, my knees hurt most of the time. Mm -hmm. If we can do a little bit more volume, and, and we tie in quite a bit of volume in our warm-up, too, where we'll do more or less three sets of 25 or four sets of 25 of bodybuilding in our warm-ups um, and at the end, and it's there to get, like, you get blood into the muscle, into the tissue, into the tendons. And it's a lot better for your tendon health. It's a lot better for being able to manage the loads that are coming up. I mean, to me, a warm-up is so important that you warm up properly and mm -hmm. thoughtfully to manage the work you're about to do. And no. so I, I, I think it's imperative that we spend time getting enough volume to manage our tendon health. And 
a little bit more muscle goes a long way to just protecting your joints. Mm -hmm. 100%. Do you find that the percentage of kind of accessory exercises, bodybuilding based exercises, changes over the course of someone's uh, lifting career, Olympic lifting career? Like, are they doing more at the beginning and then less as they become more intermediate and advanced? Or do they need more because they have a lot more potential for connective tissue damage mm. with the heavier loads? Um, I think it depends. I think it depends how much they're, how much background they're coming into the sport with. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my athletes have come in with like pretty good hypertrophy already. Like they have fairly good muscle mass, so I don't give them as much. Um, yeah. It's hard to say because I haven't, me personally as a coach, I haven't had I haven't had athletes kind of go through a 10 plus year career to Mm -hmm. see kind of how that changes over time. Yeah. But I do think in all likelihood, you're probably going to start with more hypertrophy work. Like if I was to think about from an LTAD perspective, long-term athlete development, Mm -hmm. my younger athletes, I'd be doing a lot more sort of calisthenics stuff, body weight, pull-ups, push-ups, air squats, stuff like that, yeah. which is going to develop good tendon health, good stability, better movement patterns. And then as they progress into their career, if they get into like a training age of four, five, six, we're going to be doing a lot more sort of strength bias, mm-hmm. a lot more ability, like how do we generate more force? How do we produce more force? How, how do we develop those capabilities? And then at that point, they should also have a high enough threshold where they can manage the volume of their squatting and their pulling and their pressing that it will have a hypertrophic benefit. Um, and then I would say as they get older, maybe the term that we would use is the twilight of their career. Um, I would think we would likely be, they've hit a strength peak. We would likely be pulling back a little bit, doing more hypertrophy, more recovery because as long as their squat maintains at whatever the the kilograms are, I don't need to get you any stronger. So if it means that you squat once or twice a week, you hit 90% every once in a while, I think we're probably fine, but we need to manage your tendon health. And long-term, there's the leaner you can be, oh, like as you get older, the leaner you can be, with the right amount of muscle is is going to give you long term or the longevity, right? So mm-hmm. yeah. I think there comes a point where when you really focus on strength, you're not as lean. You're going to be carrying like a little bit more body fat, which is okay in weightlifting. Like that's, that's okay. Mm-hmm. But as you sort of get out of that really highly competitive state, you're going to want to lean out a little bit maintain your muscle mass so that as you kind of progress into your thirties and forties, you're not running into atrophy and losing all that muscle and losing all that bone density you work so hard for. I mean, this is kind of getting out of the realm of competitive weightlifting and more thinking it from a longevity perspective, but that's Mm -hmm. my thought process on it. Yeah. Oh, I feel like that's an important discussion to have just because most people won't be competing at that high, high level. They're, most people are just doing it as a hobby, as maybe like local 
provincial national level so like you got to be thinking long term you can't just be thinking of the immediate yeah we, we don't i don't have a school full of 12 year olds just coming through that i can just churn over and and break enough eggs that i get an olympic athlete mm -hmm. like i need With to maintain my athletes for as long as possible because fundamentally in north america he who trains the longest it's like it's a game of attrition. The mm -hmm. longer you train, the longer you can stay healthy, the better your technique is going to get, the better your technique is going to get, the more you're going to lift. Yeah. So true. Even like in powerlifting, um, I do a little bit of coaching in that in that realm, but it's usually it's not the person who's strong, the strongest on competition competition day who wins. It's the person who's the healthiest. Yeah. So. And And that's something that, I mean, from snowboarding, like it was a high attrition sport. If you could just, if you could just survive 10 years, like, and get out with one or two surgeries, mm -hmm. like you only blow your knee. Cool. Nice. You're going <laughs> to the Olympics. Like, yeah. but it's a game of attrition that like, there's, a certain level of fear that comes in if you get hurt enough times that you're like, yo, fuck this. I'm tired of being hurt, tired of going through rehab. And I mean, that stuff doesn't happen as much in Olympic weightlifting, but it, my mindset comes from that is how can we keep you kind of healthy as long as possible? And there's going to come a point where like, you're not going to weightlift anymore. Like one of the guys I coach, is 70 and there's going to come a point where I'm like, Dave, like we're over it. We're just going to mm -hmm. do other stuff for a little while. But <laughs> like, I think being able to take your joints through that range of motion for a long period of time, I don't know many 70 year olds that can put their hands over their heads and squat. So, mm -hmm. and Dave being able to snatch close to body weight. That's awesome. That's I think amazing. that's going to be a long-term thing that's going to allow him to do a lot of the activities he wants to do mm -hmm. and on top of that just like having that social connection of maybe working with other olympic lifting athletes that's obviously positive in terms of longevity um, athletes are more likely to kind of be more aware of their nutrition mm -hmm. sleep so that will just uh, have positive effects down the line for sure yeah and i think that's so huge that that part that point that you address is the community portion is like me personally as like an athlete I've always been like a basement dweller like I like training by myself mm -hmm. I'm relatively self-motivated so I can manage a lot of that stuff on my own but from an adherence perspective and having that community and being around people and being around people that are striving towards the same goals I don't, in our TikTok day and age, I don't think that's as valued as and as important as people think it is. Like, when we're able to get the whole team together, we had the whole crew yesterday. Um, it was crazy in the gym yesterday. That was pretty mm -hmm. wild. But we had all, the whole team was there. I think we had six or seven athletes. And just the energy that everybody gets from each other and the support drove some PRs 
And it drove mm-hmm. some really good lifts. But I think just having that community and a place to go to be around people was something like we lost due to the pandemic. Um, I don't think we all acknowledged how big of a miss that was to not be able to see and communicate and be around people. Mm-hmm. Definitely. a hundred percent agree on with you on that. I want to kind of pull things back just a little bit to the programming side. Um, in the podcast I did with Josh, we kind of talked a little bit about conditioning. Um, mm-hmm. Do you guys incorporate any level of conditioning into your, your programming for Olympic lifting athletes? Yes and no. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'll say the no part. And no is in competition season, the closer we get to competition, the less sort of conditioning we do. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, and this is this is kind of the tough part about how weightlifting is set up in Alberta or in Canada even, is that there isn't really an on-season and off-season. Mm-hmm. Where in a lot of sports, like, it, my preference would be that, like, our competition season was just sandwiched from November, December to May. And the rest of the year, you didn't have any competitions or something like that. Yeah. And so right now, though, it's kind of spread throughout the year. So you have to make decisions about, like, are we really going to be in the best shape we can be in to weightlift right now? Probably not. And so when I look at it, I look at our competition season as really being from, like, November to end of March. If you're good, you'll qualify for nationals, and it'll be till the end of May. But from November till May, I have very low needs for conditioning. Weightlifting is probably enough conditioning. Your job at that point in time of the year is to snatch and clean and jerk heavy weights. I don't give a shit about, it's hard for me to walk up the stairs, coach. Cool, sounds good, not my problem. Your job is to do snatch and clean and jerk. Your job is not to walk upstairs. Um, and so that's kind of the portion of the year where we don't care. Mm-hmm. From sort of May to July, ish we do have more of an emphasis on conditioning but i wouldn't say that we use a traditional conditioning model like what josh would use for crossfit Mm -hmm. um our conditioning model is really built around doing more volume in the olympic lifts like doing longer complexes doing more high rep sets of squatting um Mm -hmm. Same thing with like some of our hypertrophy work. It's a lot higher reps. You're really pushing, like we're reducing your your time that you can rest for. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is not so much from a standard conditioning thought process, but more from a, I need you to develop a capability to manage more volume and recover faster. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the purpose of that. But it's also to develop hypertrophy. That's also the purpose of that cycle is you're doing a lot more volume in your, your strength work and your, your hypertrophy work. So we're trying to put more muscle mass on you and develop an ability to be conditioned. Mm -hmm. From there, we move into like a strength cycle. So we put on muscle mass, we've developed conditioning so that we can manage volume in later cycles. Mm -hmm. Then we're going to try and like, we've developed cross-sectional muscle size. How can I then use that cross-sectional muscle size to be more efficient? So that's going to be a a strength 
cycle. So we're going to spend a yeah. lot more time developing those standard strength qualities. And then we move into a power cycle, which is we've developed cross-sectional muscle size. We're efficient at using those. We're maybe slow as shit and our technique isn't that great right now. Then we move into a power cycle, which is how can we use that motor unit to produce force faster? And then once we've kind of blown our way through all of those, we haven't had as much emphasis on technique. There's still an emphasis on technique, but it's been building the base of that athleticism. And that normally puts us to about end of August, middle of August, September. Mm -hmm. And at that point, we can begin the process of rebuilding an athlete's technique using mm -hmm. these new physiological adaptations that we've had. Yeah. In theory, their technique isn't trash, but we haven't had as much of an emphasis on it. Mm -hmm. It's been more developing these secondary qualities in an off season so that yeah. we can then apply those secondary qualities going into the competition season. Mm -hmm. And obviously you're still like working on technique during those other phases. You just yeah. don't have as much time kind of thing. Well, and it's also just, I might be really nitpicky at like 65 or 75% as I sort of get into that, that deeper end of that cycle. Mm -hmm. But at the beginning of that cycle, I'm going to be like, just make it look not shitty. Like mm -hmm. there is still uh, like, don't just, don't just mindlessly go through it, but I'm not going to be really, really focused on that, mm -hmm. that portion of it, because that's not our goal right now. Your technique is going to get better as long as you pay attention, but I'm not going to be as big of a, a dictator around your technique as I will be as we progress later in the season. Mm -hmm. yeah, that makes sense. Definitely. I want to move on to now just talking a, a little bit outside of uh, programming. Let's talk a little bit, a little bit about kind of recovery methods, because like mm -hmm. you said, weightlifting is such a kind of a potentially damaging sport to the, the body as a whole connective tissues um, those sorts of things. So is there any specific recovery techniques that you like to have your athletes do to kind of help with that recovery process beyond what we've already discussed? Well, I think uh, it's the elephant in the room is eat good food and sleep properly. Those are, and manage your stress. I mm -hmm. think the thing I see a lot, because I mean, I, I don't have 14 year old athletes. I have grown adults is there's, a level of stress in their lives that sometimes they don't manage really effectively. Mm -hmm. And that stress manifests itself in either bad technique or uh, inflammation, right? Mm -hmm. Is how well are you sleeping and how good is your diet or how buttoned down is your diet? Those are kind of the two big things. Now, from a perspective of like a coach, I don't have a lot of control over that. Mm -hmm. I can just sort of say like, these are my recommendations. Um, but from what I can really personally control as a coach is we like to, I ensure that we're doing like some form of mobility during our warmup. There's like a specific mobility protocol for that day, for the work that we're doing that day. Mm -hmm. And it's more from a standpoint of like checking back in with your body is this is this is your shoulder this is how your shoulder's supposed to move um doing some of that stuff and and i mean that's 
Kelly Sturette, mobility wad stuff, rolling out with a barbell, rolling out with a, a, a kettlebell, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But then something that I try to have discussions about with my athletes is, is spending time doing contrast, doing stuff like that is always good because it'll, I mean, there's all the cold plunge zealots that are like, oh, it'll give you 65 more boners in the day and your testosterone goes up and this and that. And sure, whatever, like maybe we don't have a lot of research to back it up. Congratulations. Like if that's what makes you feel sweet on Instagram, go for it. But from my perspective, I think it's a really amazing downregulation tool. Mm-hmm. It's we're so go, 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 go. I'm going to have a latte and rip a zin and, and all this sort of stuff throughout the day. And it's always up, 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 up. Mm-hmm. But how do we come back down in a way that we can recover? And some people think that's a glass of wine. And some people think that's smoking weed. But I don't think that that's a good way for you to really get good quality sleep. Mm-hmm. You might feel that you're sleeping, but it's not good quality. And I think what we need to do from that perspective is figure out how we downregulate, which is... I think contrast is important for that. Like you go spend some time in a sauna and in a cold shower for a little bit, you rip through that three or four times, you're going to feel like a zombie and want to nap. Mm-hmm. I think doing some mobility stuff before bed, amazing. Turning off your TV before you go to sl- like an hour before you go to sleep. Amazing. Um, your room is cool, cold and dark. It's for sleep and sex and that's it. Get your TV mm-hmm. out of your bedroom. Like all these things are about building an environment so that you can sleep correctly. Mm-hmm. And if you sleep correctly, that's better than anything else that you can do. If you're not sleeping, then you're not recovering. And if you're not recovering anything that you're doing in the gym to try and avoid whatever problems you have in your life, whether it's work stress or marital stress or the stress of training, which training is stress is just making it worse. So what are we doing to kind of, I think of stress as like a, a, a jug of water. Some people's are bigger. Some people's are smaller. Some people start their day with it half full. Some people it never fills up, but recovery is how we empty that jug every day. And if you're not emptying it by having community, like exactly what you just said, a supportive home life, um, you, you a good job um, sleeping properly and feeling supported and feeling like you're a contributing member of society, I think adding something like weightlifting or eating like shit is just making it all worse. So I know that's not a fancy answer, <laughs> but it's, it's the answer I believe. And this is me coming from a massage therapist background too, is listen, you want to pay me a hundred bucks to rub you? Cool. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. Like I'm more than happy to do that. But I think there's a lot of stuff you can do for free. That'll do a lot more work for you to feel better and manage your life and be able to do the stuff that you want to do. Yeah, I like the on on the topic of massage therapy. At least, like, obviously, it comes down to the individual and like finding what works best for them. But in the case of massage, like, at least we know they're not going to be on their phone 
they're not going to be they're not going to be moving they might fall asleep like during the massage they're getting that human touch like so there's lots of yeah i do like massage for some people just because everyone's these days like you said go 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 but I, mm-hmm. I totally agree with you in terms of just really doing things that better set us up for better sleep because that will be our number one tool for emptying that that bucket like you said well and i i think you raise a good point around that is like when I went to school to become a massage therapist, like I always had a mindset, like how I always treated myself, like if I was doing self-rolling was like very aggressive. And there's a joke in the team that like, I'm a sadist and I, I am to a certain extent, like I like being uncomfortable and I like making myself uncomfortable, Yeah. but going through school really taught me that like, that's not not all it is. Like me personally, I'm not giving relaxation massages. Like you want a relaxation massage, go somewhere else. I'm not your guy. But there's a time and place for it. To your to your exact point is you're not on your phone. You know what? Sometimes it's just fucking nice to be in a, in a quiet dark room, not talking and being touched for a little while. Like get some compassionate touch. That's chill. Mm-hmm. Whether I would spend a hundred dollars to get that, probably not. Like mm-hmm. 15, 20 bucks or ask my partner to do it. But at the end of the day, I don't think people value what that fundamentally is, mm-hmm. which is a personal connection. And this is something that I learned as a massage therapist is when we're treating people, there's like a level of emotional transference, which is, it's pretty fucking woo woo. Like, I'm not going to sit here and be like, yeah, there's science to back it up. I don't have any science to back it up. But like if somebody comes in really stressed and really negative as a therapist, if I'm treating them, I do take on a little bit of that emotional baggage. And so that I know happens to me. I'm sure it happens to plenty of other therapists, but Mm -hmm. that is an offloading of stress. It's an offloading of emotional dysregulation um i mean maybe i just need to have more fucking crystals in here or something to like take up the bad energy but that's <laughs> those those are expensive so yeah the good ones I, are the good good crystals are expensive yeah it's it's funny that you bring that up like even like some of my sessions when i'm training my clients if they have bad energy it, it affects me but i don't like it negative negatively affects me, but I don't know if it like helps them down regulate because we're still kind of in more of a kind of a stressful situation. But in the case of massage therapy, they can let some of that go through what you're doing. So, well, and I, I think a lot of people, and this is, this is how I treat, like I treat really aggressively. I treat really deep. Um, and that can be, quite emotionally stressful. True. Yeah. I'll say to some people, if like, if you're not used to your body interprets stress as stress, your body doesn't interpret me jamming my elbow inside of your, your butt cheek any different than it does. I'm being attacked by a tiger. Your body looks at those two things the same. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people have gotten pretty soft to discomfort. And it's not, this is something I always tell my clients is like, it's not pain. It's uncomfortable. Pain is, is tissue damage. Like if you've broken your leg, that's pain. 
Mm -hmm. Like there's something physically wrong. Me putting my elbow into your, your hamstring or doing your quads is not pain. It's uncomfortable. And you haven't developed a threshold to manage that amount of input into your nervous system yet. Mm -hmm. So we need, as, as a therapist to a client, is you and I need to develop a point that you're able to manage this, but also you need to push yourself a little bit and work on breathing to be uncomfortable and manage that stress. And be okay with that stress. It's the same as it's becoming resilient and learning how to manage your nervous system reaction to stress, just like being on the assault bike. Like any of us who have been on the assault bike, dude, that's, it's not pain. It's just uncomfortable. You're not going to die. It just sucks. Mm -hmm. No, I really like that you brought that up. It's almost like the the idea of kind of in psychology, they they use the term reframing. So rather than viewing something as pain, like if you view it as being uncomfortable, then at least maybe then you kind of give yourself a little bit of, um, what's the term? A little bit of emotional leeway. Yeah, you know, just like that, or the fact that now that you're kind of in control of your ability to respond, mm-hmm. like you like you said, you're getting the the elbow into the butt or into the hamstring. Now you can like you have some tools to help kind of downregulate some of that uncomfortableness and get a little bit more comfortable with it. And I think that's, I think that's all we're really doing as coaches and trainers is everybody wants to look good naked, cool, sounds good. Like, eat your vegetables, do your pull-ups. It's not that difficult. But I think there's the deeper portion of this that we manage as coaches is how do I develop my my clients, my team, my athletes to be more resilient to change or stress so that we can apply more stress, mm-hmm. right? Like. Yeah. Um, my my fiance always laughs at me because she's like, "Are you just trying to burn it to the ground?" And it's like sometimes I'm just trying to see where where is the limit, like where is the the failure? Where's the RP ten? Yeah, and where and where's where is the, the RP ten ten outside of the gym? Like, yeah. how do I do this at work, or how do I do it? from a a perspective of like everything I need to try and get done on a day to day or in my life is like the gym and doing that stuff is how we develop like a bit of exposure. Yeah. And and not saying you have to go all the way up to that, that RP 10 day one, you kind of slowly build that your way up to that, to that that point. Yeah. And, and I mean, my RP 10 is likely not the same as my fiance's RP 10. Like she's a surgeon. She works at the hospital. She works 24 hours. Like she's working 72 hours between Friday and Tuesday this week. <laughs> and like, I'm telling you right now, if somebody was like, Hey, you want to go do this? I'd be like RP 10. Like, <laughs> fuck no, absolutely not. Like hard pass, not doing it. But for her, that's an RPE six or seven, because to exactly what we talked about, she's developed some resilience and some coping mechanisms and some skills around that, Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. where if we flip-flopped it, if I'm like, hey, like, you want to come massage people and work as a consultant and go coach throughout the week? She'd be like, no, like, I'm good. Mm -hmm. I don't need to do that. And I think too much human interaction. Yeah. She's like, let's just put people to sleep and cut them open. Like, I don't need to. I'm okay. (laughs) Um, But it's, it's figuring out how do we, how do we a figure out where somebody's RPE 10 is and how do we develop skills around making that RPE 10 bigger? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think when we look at recovery, that's really what we're trying to do is trying to empty that RPE 10 mm-hmm. so that we can like sort of buffer it more. Yeah. And then our, our exercise can help to kind of increase the size of that bucket mm-hmm. and, and other things that we do in our life, whether that's in our, our job or relationship wise or, or whatever. Yeah. And, and that little bit of activity I think can also go a long way to helping people sleep is like, I know from a personal perspective, like if I get my 10,000 steps in and I train, I'm probably sleeping like 99% chance. I'm going to sleep better. Mm-hmm. And yeah. 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 I have a lot of people come to me with sleep issues and we kind of just ask them what they're doing over the course of the day. And in some cases they're just not doing anything. So it's like, yeah, of course you're not tired when like 10 o'clock comes around cause you've done nothing today. So yeah, and you've had four coffees today. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Okay, well, I think that's we're just going to wrap things up because we talked cool. touched on a lot of great spots. I I really appreciate you coming on today. Um, I love your insights around training and nutrition and recovery and everything else we addressed today. But we didn't really get to talk about this at the start of the podcast. Tell us a little bit more about your your business, your iron farm, um, yeah, your, co- your coaching well, and, and all those I good just things. Wanted to say I appreciate you having me on, Matt. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a, it was a bit of a surprise, but I always like getting to chat, and I really appreciate you having me on. So it's been a, a great conversation. Um, yeah, so I run Iron Farm. I'm the head coach of Iron Farm. Um, that's my Olympic weightlifting team and really where I run all my like massage therapy out of. Um, we train Mondays, Wednesdays, and Saturdays at Evolve. Um, right now we have about, uh, I want to say we have, we have about eight athletes on the team currently. We have a handful of athletes that are working towards national totals. Um, I run my massage therapy business out of my house, normally treat on Saturdays and Sundays, um, mainly athletic injuries or treatments or stuff like that. And then we're also a distributor for, uh, element electrolytes. So if you, if you need electrolytes, we're your sort of salt dealer floating around here in Alberta. (laughs) That's actually, I, that's one supplement that I actually do use on my leg days, my back days. Take yeah. a tablet, tablet with about a liter of water, and yeah, I, I love that supplement. So, well, you, uh, I'll bring you a sample pack. Are you floating around today at the gym, or I will be there today. Yeah, um, I do. One of my one of my clients, she hooks me up, so I have like I'm fully stocked. I've had all the flavors before. Yeah. Um. So like I'm I'm good, but um, yeah, that's awesome that you're a, a salt dealer. Yeah, that's what we do. Awesome. <laughs> well, I, I think... appreciate it, Matt. You have a good rest of your Sunday. I'll get I'll get back to my Sunday chores and I'll probably see you at the gym this afternoon. Sounds good, man. Have a good rest of your day too.